0: Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 17th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. With me in the studio, Mike Robinson, and we're also delighted to be joined by Ben Rubin.
1: Um, We're going to start off uh, coming back to the immigration issue. And as you remember from Wednesday's programme, the Supreme Court decided to reject uh, the Home Secretary's appeal uh, and uphold the Court of Appeals' conclusion that the policy of exporting uh, immigrants from the UK to Rwanda was unlawful. Uh, well, no sooner had that happened and no sooner had we uh, talked about that than James cleverly uh, began making a statement. He said, we have a memorandum of understanding with the Rwandan government which we're going to upgrade to a treaty which is legally binding to make sure we address the specific points. Uh, it is ready pretty much now to turn into a treaty. That can be done within days, not weeks, months, uh, days the legislation could go through the house of commons quickly Uh, and so what he is effectively doing is overriding the uh, decision of the supreme court uh, by attempting to use domestic legislation to do that now this is unprecedented and no matter what you think about the uh, immigration issue uh, the issue here really is the fact that we uh, in this country uh, still supposedly a constitutional monarchy. We have three branches of government. We've got the executive, we've got the legislature, and we've got the judiciary, and each of them is supposed to uh, act to hold, uh, to place limitations on the other. And if uh, the idea of parliamentary sovereignty is now going to override that of the judiciary, and we see that this is the kind of the direction to travel from the uh, from the executive because the government is attempting or has attempted to push through legislation which restricts, for example, uh, the right of judicial review of government decisions. And now we have the government attempting to use uh, the uh, parliamentary sovereignty and uh, legislation through parliament to override the judiciary. This completely subverts our constitution. Uh, One of the other things that James cleverly said was that uh, he intends to break the business model of the human traffickers. And I just want to bring this Uh, statistic back on screen again, because of course, let's just look at the scale of the business model that's being used by human traffickers. So every year, human traffickers make 130 billion pounds profit from the trade. That's 21 million victims worldwide. 54% of them end up in sexual exploitation, 38% in forced labor, 8% in other categories, including organ trafficking. Um, That's 130 billion pounds. Uh, and that is a significant scale uh, of uh, transaction, let's say, and whatever the government is doing here, as they say, to break the business model will do nothing of the kind. We've made this point many times before. Mm. Uh, This is too big business, uh, and uh, it's like the drugs trade. They put a veneer of dealing with it on top, uh, and that's really the cost of doing business. Uh, So back to the constitutional issue here. Uh, uh, Well, sorry, just before we move to the constitutional issue, just remind you again of this that I brought on on Wednesday. Uh, this is from the Standard, the Evening Standard. It was from PA uh, originally. Uh, Rwanda says it can only bring 200 migrants from the UK under the controversial uh, deportation scheme. So, uh, you know, this is not going to solve the immigration issue in the UK. And I don't believe it's intended to either. This is putting a veneer of we are doing something on it, but in the meantime, they are subverting the constitution of the country. So let's look at what uh, Jonathan Sumption had to say about this. Uh, he said, the plan to use law to declare Rwanda is safe is constitutionally quite extraordinary. Uh, he said it would effectively overrule a decision on the facts, on the evidence by the highest court in the land. Uh, the courts have perused hundreds of pages of documents to reach this decision. For Parliament, simply to say the facts are different would be constitutionally quite extraordinary. So that's uh, what his position, uh, and really, it, this is something that we should all be concerned about. And as I say, uh, it doesn't really matter what we think about the immigration issue itself. This is a separate issue, uh, and you know, everybody is, I think, in agreement that uh, uh, this uh, sort of unbridled immigration they've been saying needs to be stopped, but they're using, the government that is, is using uh, people's uh, emotion about this issue to drive forward a constitutional Uh, destruction plan which has been in place for many many years and aside from that then there's the issue of the uh, European Court of Human Rights uh, that Britain the British government has wanted to be out of for quite some time and to bring in a British Bill of Rights which of course will remove many of the rights that that, uh, they claim that that we still have Uh, a little bit of comment on Twitter here about James Cleverley himself and how clever he is Uh, This is Dave Sumner Smith. Uh, Seriously, our new Home Secretary's greatest academic achievement is a degree in hospitality from Ealing College of Higher Education. Uh, So that was uh, the comment on Cleverly. Cleverly felt he needed to respond to this. Uh, He said, My vocational degree taught me finance and accounting, marketing comms, HR and team leadership, logistics and process management, employment law, contract law, and tort law. Doesn't include constitutional law, I think you'll notice there. But anyway, uh, all very useful he says in running a government department and by the way it was from Thames Valley University not Ealing college uh, so that was uh that was his position on this uh, I uh, find this a very dangerous situation Brian because the the uh natural uh concerns that everybody has over immigration are being fed off here in order to push through uh the destruction of whatever uh our constitutional really uh, re- Arrangement is.
0: Yeah, we, we if we put it in quite simple language, Mike, we've got a, a government which is out of control. We've described it previously as being um, a government of occupation. We've talked about a uniparty system where there is no right and left or blue and. Red Party system. It's simply one group of individuals who are trying to tell the public we can do as we please because we've been elected to Parliament. So this is very dangerous. And for me to watch the government talking uh, about trafficking, we've got an interview with a very brave lady called Sam, who's up on the front page of the UK column. Uh, She was trafficked, given full asylum in UK and then what did the same governmental system in UK do stole both her children so people really need to wake up because we've got individuals thinking they can do as they like simply because they've got access to Westminster
1: Um, Ben uh, let's say welcome to the program and uh, well you've got more on democracy and how it is being uh, dismantled
2: absolutely I mean was a really good segue thank you guys Uh, great to be here as ever Um, we are uh, hearing a lot about democracy at the moment. Um, uh, Brian just used the term uniparty, and that's a very undemocratic thing, right? So how can these two ideas possibly be compatible with each other? I'm not sure that they can. And we're hearing a lot about threats to democracy, but I don't think that the threats are actually coming from the people we're being told they're coming from. They are coming from elsewhere, as I'll get into. Uh, Last week, we spoke about the Obama Foundation, and the Democracy Forum, very grandiose event hosted by former U.S. President Obama. And we also talked about a new organization called Democracy Next, which is backed by the Open Societies Foundation, which is George Soros and the Rockefeller Foundation, amongst others. Now, at the time, I presented those as separate but related organizations. So they were related by the message that they were pushing. But actually, on closer inspection this week, it turns out they are much more closely linked. Uh, I've discovered that Claudia Chalice, that's how I'm going to pronounce that name. I'm uh, Apologies if I'm getting that catastrophically wrong. I probably am. But Claudia Chalice, who's the founder and the CEO of Democracy Next, is in fact an Obama leader for Europe at the Obama Foundation. Now, the Leaders for Europe program identifies emerging leaders working in government, civil society and the private sector who've demonstrated a commitment to advancing the common good. So this is clearly a coordinated effort to push assemblies and new forms of democracies onto nation states. Uh, the, this is a live topic of conversation. Uh, it's actually reared its head again in London this week. uh, I attended an event at Nesta about deliberative democracy and citizens' assemblies. This happened on Wednesday. It's called Democracy, doing it for ourselves and setting up citizens' assemblies without any kind of um, formal remit to do so, and then publishing the opinions that come out of those assemblies essentially as a form of lobbying I think that's what they're promoting here Uh, the event was hosted by Ravu Guru Murthy who's the CEO of Nesta it featured a keynote by a gentleman called Nicholas Gruen who's an Australian academic and CEO of something called the lateral economics and there was a panel including Martin Wolf who's the chief economist at the FT he's been there for a very long time very well established fellow Uh, Worth noting that the FT is part of Nikkei Group and Nikkei is a World Economic Forum partner, Uh, useful to know. And also a lady called Claire Mellier, who is the knowledge lead at something called the Izwi Foundation. Again, another one of these sort of non-profit, uh, non-partisan type organizations promoting these ideas. And she was also very interestingly an initiator of the United Nations COP26 climate change conference. She actually described that as a global citizens assembly. So they actually think that they've been doing this in practice already for a number of years now. A little bit more about Nesta, for those who aren't familiar with it, it has been covered on the column quite a bit previously. It's the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. It was established in 98. It's a legacy of the first Blair government. It was seed funded with a quarter of a billion pounds from the National Lottery. And based on their published accounts, they've got about 500 million still in the pot, which they're using in a whole number of ways. They describe themselves as an innovation partner, a venture builder, and a system shaper, interestingly, focused on all the things that you would expect them to be focused on. And I've got a little video here to run, which will give you some more background.
3: The UK faces major challenges. Climate change, inequality, ill health. All of these problems can seem overwhelming, but we believe it's possible to meet these challenges through innovation. That's the creation of new and better solutions We believe that through new products, new services, new business models and new policies, meaningful change is possible. We are Nesta, the UK's innovation agency for social good. We design new solutions, test them rigorously and help them to spread nationwide. How? By bringing our teams of designers, data scientists and behavioral scientists to work with partners across the public and private sector, from local authorities and nurseries to supermarkets and energy companies, by harnessing the power of the arts to understand social problems and design solutions, by building new companies from scratch and investing in early stage ones, by looking at what gets in the way of innovation and unblocking it, we push the boundaries of what's possible. We're on a mission to reduce education inequality in early childhood, ensuring all babies and toddlers have a fairest start in life, an equal chance to thrive. We are on a mission to make healthy eating easier and more accessible in schools, high streets, workplaces and online, helping more people live a healthy life for longer. We are on a mission to reduce global warming by redesigning the UK's energy systems to reduce harmful pollution from households. We envision a sustainable future where people can heat their homes more efficiently, cheaply, and easily. Our vision is a better life for millions of people. We are on a journey to that different and brighter future. We are Nesta, join us on that journey.
2: Okay, so a lot in there. Um, I mean, the key points are that ideologically it's, it's quite predictable. They're touching on all the topics you'd expect them to, climate change, inequality, ill health. And actually, on the face of it, none of this seems reasonable to argue with, right? But unfortunately, uh, the uh, the influence of organisations like Nesta is quite nefarious, I believe. And when you look at the uh, the way that these um, their influence is deployed, Uh, I don't think that they're setting us in a particularly positive direction. And in order to understand that a bit better, you just need to listen to the way that they talk about things like deliberative democracy. Um, So I suggest going to their YouTube channel, the Nestor YouTube channel, to watch the the full presentation. It's just over an hour long. It's definitely worth going to have a look at. Um, But I'm just going to show you another quick clip now from Rabbi Guru Murthy to give you a sense of his view on, 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 uh, on these methods.
4: There's an assumption there, though, isn't there, that the the process will come up with the right answer and that when people deliberate, they suddenly become rather progressive and sensible.
0: Uh, Um, Sensible? I don't equate sensible and progressive, I'm afraid. (laughs) I'm much more reactionary than that.
4: Good. Well, um, you you take my point. There's an assumption that this is a a way of... When people really weigh up the issues, actually they come up with a a better judgment than when they haven't deliberated. But if you take... um, and I think there's lots of good examples of that being the case. Yeah. Um, I've been involved in, in one or two things on the energy side where we uh, got people to participate in a, uh, a 2050 net zero plan and, and, and actually people come up with very, very sensible ideas, almost identical to the economist cost optimising models that we put through in the energy department. If you It's took very easy
0: p- to get people to agree on what needs to be done in 2050. It, yeah. it is, but
4: even 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 in the nearer term questions. But if you took if, no, if, if you, if you, if you questions that are very difficult, like the death penalty or immigration, right now, um, would you take the risk of um, putting this through uh, a citizens assembly, um, or, or would you be fearful of the potential um, consequences of doing that?
2: So it's quite a lot in there. Um, they obviously view these assemblies of, uh, as a way to get people to come up with the right answer. And the right answer is a progressive and sensible one. Right? Is this a deliberately manipulative process that they want to be putting people through? I think there's a really interesting turn of phrase there at the end. Would you take the risk of putting issues like the death penalty or immigration through a citizens assembly? I'm guessing in case you don't get the answer that you're looking for, you'd be fearful of the consequences. He then goes on to ask Claire Mellier, the, uh, the the UN lady, would you use citizens' assemblies on an issue where the public are much more to the right of the political elite? Which, again, is a fascinating turn of phrase. First of all, that Mr. Gary Murphy believes that there is such a thing as a political elite. Uh, and I assume that he believes he's part of that. And this is an, an elite who knows best, who have the right answer, and that they are significantly more left wing, all of them. And I'm assuming sensible and progressive than the general public. right? So they want to use these tools, but they only want to use them if they think that they can get the the the, uh, the answers that they want out of them. Very, very interesting to watch these people in their natural habitat and hear what they really think about the population that they're supposed to be serving. Uh, that's not just in the UK, either, by the way. They actually operate Nesta across Asia and the Commonwealth. And really interestingly, they are now the owners of the Behavioural Insights team, also known as the UK government's Nudge Unit, uh, which UK column uh, readers and viewers will be very familiar with. So Nudge was described by David Halpin, who was the founder of the Nudge Unit, is being particularly linked to Harvard professor Cass Sunstein. Sunstein, author of, amongst other things, conspiracy theories and other dangerous ideas, and democracy and the problem of free speech, which puts the Nestor event about democracy into an interesting context, I think. So far, so terrifying. Uh, Halpin himself, he's a fascinating character. He was the chief analyst in Tony Blair's strategy unit at Number 10 between 2001-2007, involved in uh, all, of, all of the uh, uh, new Labour policy work at the time. Uh, he then left to set up the Institute for Government. Uh, he was involved in the writing of the Mindspace paper. He then took this back into Number 10 helped to establish the Nudge Unit. If you look at his profile here on the Institute for Government website, uh, it gives a very fascinating look at what he was up to just over a decade ago. Really, It's just like a timeline of how this stuff has developed and, and how it's been um, embraced into the status quo. Uh, and they are absolutely everywhere. They aren't just working with government. Um, they're working in the private sector as well, for example, with Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, who've been running a series of events, a whole sequence of activity looking at deliberative democracy. I don't know why Meta would be interested or involved in deliberative democracy, but apparently they are and they're paying the Behavioural Insights team a lot of money to do it. Uh, Keir Starmer's considering introducing these ideas um, into the Labour manifesto. So he's been talking about reforming the House of Lords. Unclear exactly how he would want to do that. But there was some discussion about the idea of replacing the Lords with the Citizens' Assembly. In particular, they want to get rid of those nasty old bishops, the Lords Spiritual, I think that they're called. Is that right? I think it's right. They're certainly not temporal. Um, what else? Uh, Nesta and BIT, they're doing some, um, uh, some, some big things. They're being asked big questions by, by the state right now. So uh, earlier on this year, they launched a program called UK 2040 Options. Uh, this is sponsored by Lord Gus O'Donnell, the the former civil servant, formerly known as God because of his initials. And this program is going to be publishing policy statements in a number of key areas, uh, whether that's about economic growth, health, technology, education, net zero, wealth and income inequality, tax and public finances, power and place. And obviously, deliberative democracy is going to factor into that if Nesta and these people have anything to do with it Uh, and also really interestingly as a final point on this behavioural insights are being used I mean we've certainly used throughout the pandemic but they're still being embraced today by the NHS and we've just seen an announcement from Public Health Wales over the past week that they've joined a new behavioural research hub Um, so we can expect to see uh, the use of these techniques in the health system. Uh uh, 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 increase as as time goes on.
0: Okay, Ben. Thank you very much for that. Uh, well, if we summarise it a bit, we've got a lot of completely unaccountable people making policy to change our lives in the future in all sorts of ways. And of course, much of it is behavioural change. That is one network system which is going on across the country. Uh, Let's have a look at another one, which uh, in some ways is even more dangerous. And we're back onto the subject of prevent. Uh, Now, I want to say that uh, I've just done a uh, no Smoke Without Fire, with Debbie Evans looking into preventing in great detail as a result of some excellent research that she's carried out. But today, for our audience for the news, I wanted to just focus people in on what's happening under the surface. And this is particularly relevant as uh, David Cameron comes back on the full political scene. So, uh, this was an article that we published uh, back in 2015 Prevent Duty Guidance for England and Wales. Uh, But we labelled it Britain a Stasi state. And what were we talking about? Well, uh, this was uh, the meat of it, that uh, a school in Cornwall, a parent uh, was surprised to find that the Prevent team got involved as a result of some things happening with children in that school. Uh, but in the government's own words, um, Prevent is statutory guidance, uh, which makes clear that schools and childcare providers are expected to assess, it, assess the risk of children being drawn into terrorism including support for extremist ideas that are part of terrorist ideology. Now, remember, in this article, we're talking about very small children, um, but this is uh, David Cameron's agenda. It's his prevent policy. Just remember that as this man is now let loose on the international uh, scene. So alongside the prevent spying and reporting system, the Conservative government set up channel duty guidance. It channels people into a multi-agency monitoring and, quote, detainment system, which mirrors MAPA, the multi-agency public protection arrangements. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to find out because this is really serious stuff. And then it tells us that channel and MAPA are going to share secret committee meetings behind closed doors, secret committees meeting behind closed doors to assess, judge, and convict individuals of crimes for which there are no clearly defined definitions. Now, this is me speaking in the article, but what I'm saying is absolutely correct because these people are unaccountable. And the Stasi state is mentioned uh, at the bottom of the UK column article. Well, surprise it uh, to be that in 2015, we also had organisations such as Amnesty International warning about what was coming. Uh, Their headline lessons from the Stasi, a cautionary tale on mass surveillance. And this is a picture on screen of the old Stasi headquarters in East Germany. Uh, and if we bring in a bit of that, it's, uh, Amnesty International's article said, while the Stasi archive is overwhelming, today's spies can gather far more information with a fraction of the effort. So um, let's follow this through. Here's the man we should be watching. Um, we should be watching in there. Back in 2015, the four pillars of David Cameron's counter-extremism strategy. Uh, This is the data from the government on uh, the fact sheet, Prevent and Channel, brought up to date relatively at 2021. So I'm going to invite our um, viewers and listeners to research that for themselves. But if we just uh, bring this in simply, Prevent addresses the personal and social factors which make people more receptive to radicalisation Uh, We've got channel, which is the referral process, and note it says the channel panel is chaired by the local authority and can include a variety of partners such as the police, children's services, social services, education professionals, and mental health care professionals. They can all report on any individual in this country without the individual being aware And that data can be freely shared with the multi-agency public protection arrangements, um, which is supposed to protect against violent and sexual offenders. But we've already seen many examples when it goes outside those boundaries. And of course, in the sidelines, we've got GCHQ spying on people in the UK, 77 Brigade from the British Army. And as a result of Conservative Francis Maud's efforts, uh, we have data being shared with the Israeli uh, Security Unit 8200. So think about the network which Ben has just described. Now, over on that, uh, we've got this uh, spying network, which, as we've said, puts Stasis to shame. We're going to show you a little video clip. This gentleman is a... Uh, an official who had a bad experience with counter-terrorism police. Uh, The label in this Telegraph uh, video is former official claims police used mog selfie as evidence of, quote, far-right extremism. So if you're a veteran listening in to us today, you should understand that your key label as a veteran is far-right. But I'm going to say to our audience, this man is very quietly spoken. The clip is three minutes. Please stay focused and listen to what he says. What do you claim Andrew that the police did wrong against you in their actions?
5: Well, I mean,
0: um Stephen,
5: this summer, uh the independent office for police conduct actually upheld my review against the police, and for me, that's vindication, and as a part of that process, I had to first complain to the Metropolitan Police and they should have actually had my complaints Investigated by the Department for Professional Standards in a formal investigation, but they absurdly gave it to the very local unit I was complaining about, and naturally they conducted an internal whitewash, cleared themselves, and then put out a press release last summer. Um, I'm also autistic, and I made a disability discrimination claim against them, and they ignored that. But I mean, Stephen, the 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 IOPC report, it's it's quite long. It's 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 very healing for me to read it because you know everywhere they the independent office police conducts ruling against me but you know some of the complaints i made <laughs> which the iopc takes the police for you know to task over is the ignoring i made over 50 complaints and they only investigated three minor ones and then ignored the rest officers at the highest level including christina dick should be investigated The leaks of such documents are normally addressed on work premises by civil servants. The involvement of the counterterrorism police and the whole approach to the arrest was unprecedented and not proportionate. Um, Neil Boss, assistant commissioner, threatened to uh, arrest and prosecute journalists. I mean, the list is quite endless and the police just ignored all that and cleared themselves. Um, And and, and I'll just finish with this, Stephen. The police, because we could be here all day going over that very brilliant report the IOPC gave me. But the police told my witnesses to go away and not contact him. Contact them. They stated in writing that they were not going to consider any of my evidence, but only evidence of the counterterrorism police and my enemies uh, in the civil service. Uh, and this really is Soviet-style behavior. And so I'm very pleased with the decision by the IOPC. And the report mentions that the police did a risk assessment uh, the day before they um, raided my home with a uh, with 14 fully armed counterterrorism police officers who broke down the front door and, and trashed my flat and, and, and took me from my post-cancer surgery sick bed to Soviet police station. And the the risk assessment that they get that I got released to me not from the police but from the because the police have refused me all documents. But I got released from the Crown Prosecution Service. It says. Subject, you know, has no firearms, no knives, no weapons, drugs, infectious persons, infectious articles, hazardous substances, dangerous animals, you know, unsafe structure, no criminal record, and that was made the day before they um, raided my home. So why on earth uh, did they need to raid my home with 14 counterterrorism police officers?
0: So really, really important things coming to light there as he analyzes a system, but essentially surveillance and counter-terrorism police out of control in order to raid a person's home with 14 police. This is the state of UK in uh, 2023. Now, if we looked at some of the social media comments under the video, they were particularly interesting because we got people saying uh, this man is educated Uh, articulate noses rights, Uh, common purpose police state legacy of Blair. Well, that is actually true. But actually, we've got to remember the Tories with David Cameron fully involved. And then a particularly astute uh, comment term far right is anything right of Gramsci these days. So people clearly picking up on the significance of this. But then let's think about this aspect again. This is back in 2017, where we were showing that GCHQ was going to run residential courses for children and teenagers to draw them into its spying uh, system. And uh, this is the article, we chose Gl- uh, Gloucestershire Live, um, but a newly set up specialist cybersecurity arm running residential courses for 2,500 uh, teenagers. And of course, they want what they call the brightest and best in order to bring them in and groom them into the GCHQ way of thinking. This is not fantasy. This is reality in UK. And all of this is well Uh, well, um, uh, underway. Um, I'm just going to play this very quickly and talk over. People can freeze the screen. But the key thing is, of course, spying is very exciting for children. Children will be brought in and effectively groomed into the GCHQ way of thinking, which is that it's right to spy on the population as a whole. And uh, don't uh, forget that GCHQ is a common purpose trained organisation Uh, That is the pernicious charity that David Cameron was himself involved with. And just to put a little bit of final gloss on this, uh, this was a report that we made in 2012, uh, where The Mirror and other uh, papers were reporting that David Cameron had lost Steve Hilton, his big society guru. And as we've said on many occasions, the key thing is that big society was... David Cameron's agenda to completely change society in UK. And that big change policy is being put into force as we speak. It has not gone away in any shape or form. And of course, the other thing we highlighted was that uh, this was all linked into the big corporations. And we pointed out relations between uh, Hilton and Rachel Whetstone, the high powered communications chief of Google, and. Um, and uh, godparents to David Cameron's eldest son. And I'll just finish on this for for Ben, because this is back in 2014, and we've got uh, an article that we showed on the news. Former Nesta trustee says it was, quote, forced, or says they were forced, uh, to fund big society network projects. So all of this can be very tightly linked together, and it's all being progressed under the surface unbeknown to the majority of the wider population in UK.
1: Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership there is very much appreciated if you would consider joining us. Uh, you could pick something up in the at the UK Column shop, including the MHRA t-shirt uh, and uh, maybe a membership voucher for uh, a Christmas gift for somebody, perhaps. Uh, but uh, do share material you find on the various platforms, especially UKcolumn.org and UKcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, just want to give a reminder that on uh, Sunday, the third of December, uh, we are hosting on behalf of uh, International Center for 9/11 Justice the first annual David Ray Griffin Lecture, and this is really going to be looking at uh, the uh, events which have taken place and driven by uh, 9/11, uh, everything that we've seen geopolitically uh, since then. So. Uh, Do watch that if you possibly can, uh, and share this if you you could, please. Uh, And also want to highlight uh, that Andrew Bridgen is going to be bringing a number of doctors uh, into Parliament on the uh, Monday, the 4th of December, uh, for Democracy, Truth and Freedom to give evidence, Uh, and he is asking for everybody to lobby their MP to attend uh, this historic meeting to hear expert testimony on the pandemic and its consequences. Um, So uh, there's a template letter and information available at saveoursovereignty.co.uk.
0: Brilliant, thanks Mike. Uh, Well let's just move on quickly, a couple of emails. This one was sent in to me, it was about the Saturday Cenotaph event and uh, Peter says, I was at the Cenotaph on Sunday. The crowds were there to protect the ceremony and monument because they were either unaware or distrustful of the police willingness or ability to do it. Events in Rochdale hadn't helped. It's important to recognise that these concerns were shared by many veterans. Once in London, it was realised the police were out in force, the desire to change to wanting to observe the ceremony and being unable to do this angered them, hence the attempts to force their way in. However, once the silence and ceremony commenced, they were respectful and quiet. I cannot comment with any authority on events after that. There is no doubt some people came looking for a fight, but that's no different to almost any large gathering. I hope you can broadcast this. Well, we have Peter and we're pleased to do so. And this one I'll summarise really, but uh, I'd said, uh, I've said a couple of times that if you're more mature Um, you've got to hold some responsibility for the state of the country because we voted in the corrupt politicians that are in power and have been over many years. Uh, But the person said, I feel you're putting yourself down unnecessarily. The problem's been going on longer than my or your lifespan. Power has been held in the hands of a few for for thousands of years. And even our supposed great democracy was founded by the barons seeking to take some power from the crown for their own The only criticism I feel you and I should accept is that it took us so long to recognise the problem. So I felt that Anthony sent in a very heartfelt email. Um, I take all the points and people can freeze that and have a look. And then this one was really just giving us a heads up of government ads in the Daily Mail. And what was the subject? Well, the subject is, are you winter ready? Now's the time to book your flu and COVID vaccinations. A big advert from the government, big money for the Daily Mail, of course. Uh, but if you look at who's being targeted for the free jams, they're all people that our data would suggest could be highly at risk for adverse effects from the jabs. Yes. And uh, last one oh. here, um, get appy. Um, so they're encouraging people to get this free NHS app as a simple and secure way to access services. But as Debbie has pointed out, that this is uh, a key part of control of you via the NHS system.
1: OK, uh, I want to ask a question about uh, ambulance service service here coming onto health. Uh, so this was uh, a story in the Plymouth Live. Torpoint woman died after seven hour ambulance wait. Now, this was uh, a, an inquest into her death Uh, And the subhead says, worried partner of Anne-Marie Humphreys had called for paramedics, but it did not arrive uh, until much later, an inquest heard. That's their words. Uh, So let's look at what it says here. The opening statement in the inquest reveals the circumstances surrounding the sad passing of Anne, noting, quote, Anne's partner had called an ambulance to attend the family home and he had vomited blood and was becoming very short of breath. Unfortunately, an ambulance did not attend for approximately seven hours after the initial call. A first responder had attended and had also called for assistance on arrival at Dereford Hospital Annie underwent emergency treatment, but despite best efforts, she sadly died. There are no suspicious circumstances. Well, the article then went on to say this, and this is what I'm really questioning here. Mrs. Archer noted that on the precedent evidence that Mrs. Archer was the, uh, the um, coroner, uh, that on precedent evidence, the medical cause of death was ascertained as ischemic hepatitis. Uh, and esophageal and and uh, var- uh, variceal hemorrhage, liver cirrhosis due to alcohol-related liver disease. So uh, there's clearly a lifestyle issue here. And my question is, is it had this anything to do with the uh, late arrival of the ambulance? I'm not saying it had, I'm asking the question, and I think we do need an answer to this. Uh, because of course, the issue of people's lifestyle choices have been increasingly uh, an issue of whether they're going to get any medical treatment or not. Now, the, the headlines that we've seen, such as this one, uh, should access to NHS service be contingent on a person's vaccination status, as was in nurses.co.uk. We saw headlines like this during the COVID pandemic, but actually this went on for for long before that. This is the independent NHS under fire after announcing obese patients will not get, will not get non-urgent surgery until they lose weight. Uh, and uh, another one here, this is... Uh, Uh, From uh, I think it was from AP originally, but in UK survey, doctors support denying treatment to to smokers and the obese. And actually this was from 2012. So this idea of withholding treatment for anybody who's made the wrong kind of lifestyle choice as far as the authorities are concerned uh, is one that has been around. And although the headlines up to this point have been very keen to make sure that that was understood to be for non-urgent or non-emergency treatment, my question then is, Uh, has this been rolled out for maybe the the, uh, prioritization of ambulance service? Uh, And then the question is, what happens when this becomes an issue for artificial intelligence? So here is uh, the Building Better Healthcare website saying, struggling ambulance services, ignoring the potential of AI to uh, relieve pressures. This is from August 2022. Uh, And they're highlighting that some... Uh, agency, some uh, ambulance areas aren't considering the use of AI, and maybe they should be. uh, And this pressure is starting to build. This is healthcare website, how tech-enhanced call handling can help ambulance services. So we've got a problem with ambulance services. We need to bring AI in to solve the problem. And this is Forbes, how NHS 111 London is using AI to ensure patients get the care they need urgently. So my question really is, what happens once uh, we move towards this removal of human decision making over uh, prioritization? That's one question, and the other question is: Has that already happened, or has has the the question of of lifestyle already been brought into the decision making process for ambulances via the AI? Well, not the, yeah. not a, not at this stage because it hasn't been widely rolled out. But but is that in fact already be the case, and will that yeah. be rolled into the AI models? that are being used. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we've got some serious questions to ask about that. Uh,
0: indeed. And, of course, uh, the humanity is going, going out of the uh, system very fast, indeed. Um, I think we're... Right.
2: Uh, we're on to Ben.
0: Yes, we're bringing Ben back in.
2: Did, did, we, did the NHS work before artificial intelligence? Does anyone know?
1: It, it did at some mm-hmm. point.
0: It did. Yeah, it, had, like, it had issues, Ben. Everybody who's worked in the NHS will always say we didn't get it entirely right. There were mistakes made, sometimes horrible mistakes. But overall, the, uh, the thing was, was functioning.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, Ben, uh, bring us up to date on AstraZeneca.
2: Absolutely. So back, back to the NHS, um, uh, a sign of things to come, hopefully. Uh, The BBC are being forced to report on things happening in the world. And AstraZeneca is facing a legal challenge over its COVID vaccine. Uh, This comes from a man who suffered severe brain injury after having a jab in April 2021. This gentleman, Jamie Scott, he suffered a blood clot and that left him with brain damage and he was unable to keep working. Uh, It's a legal action taken under the Consumer Protection Act. And I think this the, the the dam may be about to burst on this. This is the first um, mainstream report that I've seen of legal action taken against a COVID vaccine manufacturer. Obviously, the NA uh, the the BBC in its reporting has to include the line that studies suggest that COVID vaccines have saved millions of lives. Right, they can't just report what's going on. They have to include some propaganda in there. I think that they are starting to panic down in W1. Um, AstraZeneca was a traditional vaccine, but the, the mRNA vaccine manufacturers could also be under threat. Um, this just recently, I think it was from today or from yesterday, from Steve Kirsch uh, on Twitter, who says that the litigation floodgates are about to open for mRNA COVID vaccine manufacturers. So we'll see what happens. Why is this happening? Uh, Well, if you haven't been paying attention, COVID vaccines have killed and injured people at an unprecedented rate, Um, more than any other pharmaceuticals in history, in fact. Um, AstraZeneca in the UK, according to the MHRA yellow card scheme, has killed 1,364 people out of a total of 2,459 people killed by all of the COVID vaccines. And those are just the ones reported To the MHRA via their yellow card scheme. A big thanks to UK Freedom Project for collating those numbers, doing a fantastic job on that, giving us informed of the data coming out of the system, which all of our politicians and our clinical leaders had access to, uh, just the same as everybody else. Uh, but actually, it's, it's a larger issue than that. The MHRA yellow card scheme has caught some of the deaths and some of the injuries. But actually, there's been some statistics released from HART, the health advisory and recovery team over the past couple of months, showing that we could be looking in the region of 80,000 excess deaths since the start of the vaccination programme. Right. So uh, an, an extraordinary number of deaths caused by interventions uh, by our health system, and another view on that data, uh, you can see this uh, this heat map here, uh, with the darker red and the black sections showing a huge increase in excess deaths, especially in younger ages, from mid 2021 onwards, uh, completely correlated to the rollout of the COVID vaccines really a very depressing chart. Uh, I suggest going to look at the Hart uh, website. They've done some fantastic research. This was put together to send to MPs who are leaving office to see if they can cajole them into speaking out. Um, but of course, this isn't. Uh, these aren't just numbers. Uh, this, these aren't just statistics. This is a very real and a very human tragedy. These numbers have faces. They have families. And they are organizing themselves to litigate. So we've seen one example of AstraZeneca. That's just one individual reported by the BBC. But there are groups of people organizing themselves online. This is just one example here from the VITT litigation group um, who've been focusing on uh, those who've experienced blood clots specifically from the AstraZeneca vaccines. They're raising some money for a legal challenge. Uh, That's just one example that, that I thought I'd share with you. And despite all of this, and this is really the most remarkable thing, and, and this obviously has been going on for quite some time now, but despite all of this, despite legal action um, being reported by the BBC, the mainstream media, uh, it, I've given you a couple of examples here, of The Independent and The Guardian, they are still promoting COVID vaccination. Despite having access to all of the information that we have access to, they are still promoting COVID vaccination. And in fact, as you can see on the left hand side there with the Independent, that's an advertisement feature from her, His Majesty, sorry, His Majesty's government. So the government are also funding the, these messages as well.
1: Yes. Thank you, Ben. Okay. Uh, let's move back to David Cameron then. And uh, well, he was uh, uh, in uh, Ukraine meeting Zelensky. There he is. Uh, and they, he was very excited to meet uh, Zelensky uh, a couple of days ago. Um, so I just want to show a little bit of uh, video of them actually speaking to each other um, bec- and pay particular attention to uh, Vladimir Zelensky's body language, his facial expressions and his... Uh, well, is he comfortable? Let's have a look.
6: It's very important. Now, you know, the world is not focused on on the situation or on our battlefield and in Ukraine. And that's uh, dividing for focuses uh, really doesn't help. And uh, we are thankful that UK always supported Ukraine. You're very welcome, you and your team, Ambassador. Uh, we are, we are thankful for this message.
4: Thank you. I, I wanted this to be my first person personally. I admire the strength and determination of the Ukrainian people. And what I want to say by being here is that we will continue to give you the moral support, the diplomatic support, the economic support, but above all, the military support that you need, not just this year and next year, but however long it takes. Um, I had some disagreements with my friend Boris Johnson, but we've known each other for 40 years. And his support for you was the finest thing that he and his partners lived 100%. And so, it's really important to have this meeting, to hear what it is you most need, to work out how we can work together, how we can uh, get the communications right with all our friends and allies,
6: you know, to make sure the attention is here in Ukraine. Because, and I feel this very personally. Thanks for these words, uh, because we understand that the help of the world can be divided um, because the crisis in the Middle East. And, and I, I, it's a pity, but, uh, but we should mention that uh, I think that is not the last crisis. What can be in even not only in the world, in Europe. So I don't know what you make of that.
0: Well, it's the man in the bunker. He's uh, he's in a horrific position now because, of course, the West wants to get rid of him because the war's failed from Ukraine's point of view. Uh, but he's also got a military coup possibly sitting over his shoulder. Um, he's a damaged man and it shows very clearly. And now he's got David Cameron to help him by pumping in the weapons for as long as it takes. So here's the Conservative Party at its best. Let's get the weapons in. Let's keep keep the killing going. doesn't matter where it is in the world, whether it's going to be Syria or Libya or Yemen. Uh, or Ukraine, let's get the weapons in, let's keep the death going.
1: Uh, Well, we should not forget that it was David Cameron which uh, kicked off Operation Orbital for training Ukrainian troops in 2015. Here's Financial Times talking about that. David Cameron, prime minister at the time, to send UK military trainers uh, to Ukraine, but that wasn't the only thing. Oh, uh, we should mention this, by the way. Uh, He uh, also discussed uh, Ukraine's NATO aspirations uh, with the deputy prime minister, uh, of Ukraine, there they are. Now it's a bit sad that uh, Ukraine only had one flag, apparently, to show uh, for them to stand in front of. It's for the 70th jubilee.
0: Or well, uh, is it Cameron they're referring to?
1: With God Save the Queen. Yeah, it's hard absolutely. To say. It's hard to say, but anyway, uh, they met to discuss that. Uh, but uh, Cameron also was behind uh, this uh, operation, um, Operation Interflex, which uh, is alongside Operation Orbital. Uh, and uh, they are just—they well, claim that they are on track for training thirty-seven thousand Ukrainian re- recruits. Uh, they're just about to re- train the thirty-thousandth Ukrainian recruit. I wonder how many of them are still alive uh, that they've trained so far. Uh, but uh, don't worry—if we want to know what's going on in the world, we can always rely on the BBC. So they have published this today: uh, swimming rivers and fake illness. Uh, to escape Ukraine's draft. And they're saying that nearly 20,000 men have fled Ukraine since the beginning of the war to avoid being drafted, the BBC has discovered. Some have swum dangerous rivers to leave the country, Others have simply walked out under the cover of darkness. Another 21,113 men attempted to flee but were caught by Ukrainian authorities, Kiev confirmed. After Russia's invasion, they said most men aged 18 to 60 were banned from leaving, but data obtained by the BBC reveals dozens have made it out daily. So they were talking about this on the Radio 4 Today program, and I just want to end this little section on Ukraine with uh, Nick Robinson's uh, no relation, thank goodness. Uh, Nick Robinson's uh, sort of response to this. Uh, have a listen.
0: You can watch the BBC i documentary about Ukraine's draft dodgers on BBC i Player.
1: I have to say I find that a little offensive. Uh, but anyway, that's how the BBC wants to refer to them as draft. draft dodgers. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, and, and on the uh, back to the BBC again on uh, Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza, of course, this has been hitting the news because of uh, Israel's actions there. Uh, the BBC managed to get themselves inside. I, I believe this was this was the only Western media organization that managed to get themselves inside, uh, brought in by the IDF, uh, and they were very happy about that. What did they find there? Pretty much nothing. Uh, but, uh, well, anyway, uh, on the issue of Al-Shifa Hospital, I want to highlight this uh, little piece of video from uh, Al Jazeera. Uh, this is David Friedman uh, that uh, the presenter is speaking to. Uh, he is the former ambassador, Israeli ambassador to the United States. Uh, just have a listen to this.
2: It's been proven with certainty. It's been proven with certainty that the headquarters of Hamas is under the Al Shifa Hospital in. Gaza City. Now you know what happened a couple of days we're ago. Proven by Hamas.
5: Let, had Mark, are you going to let me finish? Mark, I can't allow you to. You I, I, I cannot allow you to name to say fifteen things that are unfactual and not be challenged on them. I'm happy to let you talk, but I ha- I'm going to ask clarifying questions. You're going to question. tell me what's factual, Mark? Yes. I I I spent five f-
2: years of my life studying this,
5: living it. How, what was the last time? What was the last time you were in Gaza, Mark? Uh, what was the last time you were in Gaza? Uh, Eighteen months ago. When, when okay, was the last time you were in Gaza? Um, uh, a, few, a few years ago. Okay, so you said Al Shifa Hospital has been proven Hamas headquarters. What independent yes. uh, uh, reference, what source, what investigation has proven that? Who has proven that it's an Al Shifa Hospital since it's been a proven fact? Who proved it? So now we're going to get into this basic like Holocaust denying idea that that evidence that Israel has shown is not valid. I mean, is that what you're doing? Do, <laughs> no, you do? Do you deny that? people were raped Everybody that challenges you is not doing Holocaust denial. You said that it's a Hamas headquarter.
0: This is reality. This is the reality of it. This is the reality of it. You dare challenge anything that's coming out of Israel at the moment. They use this trope on you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I say, nothing particularly fine there. Now, of course, the other point that needs to be made is uh, that whatever was under Al Shifa hospital, uh, Israel already knew what it was because they built it. Uh, they built it while they were occupying the area uh, quite some time ago. So uh, there's much more to be uh, discovered about this and uh, we'll uh, cover more in due course. Uh, let's come back to you, Ben.
2: Sure. So uh, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to an organization, a media organization called Tortoise. And uh, this launched about five years ago. It is a standards-based, sensible and progressive media outlet. They do news, events, all the kinds of things you'd expect, um, huge podcast operation. They have incredible access to the top level of business, to the top level of of politics in this country and further afield, they're especially interested in dispelling vaccine uh, disinformation, and they've also uh, very proudly created a podcast to dispel the conspiracy theories around satanic ritual abuse, which I, I think is is quite a fascinating thing for them to be focused on. Uh, let's have a little look at who who they're partnering with. Uh, a, a huge range of of different corporations. Uh, Well, There's a bunch of logos here. Some of the ones that really jumped out at me were EY, my alma mater, uh, the Gates Foundation, Facebook, Genomics England, and also the Church of England, for some reason, has has made it onto onto their partner list. Um, I first came across them earlier on this year. I was doing some research into a UK charity called My Life, My Say, which is run by uh, this gentleman here, Meti Koban who is a UK Labour politician. My Life, My Say is partnering with the uh, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. They're very much involved in the, the social engineering that's going on at the moment. I've written about that um, specifically on my own blog, uh, Rise UK. Uh, there's an article on there called Babylon the Great Greatest Fallen, which has um, uh, caused uh, some raised eyebrows. And uh, if you want to find out more about My Life, My Say, you can go and have a look at that. Uh, Tortoise are actually a, a, a strategic partner of my life, my say. Uh, and that organization was founded by a gentleman called James Harding. Uh, James Harding is the co-founder and editor of Tortoise Media. Before that, he was director of news and current affairs at the BBC. He's also spent quite a bit of time at The Times. Um, he's a, a proper old school media type. And actually, his editorial team is is remarkably well stocked with people from those types of organizations, given how young they are. Uh, it, 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 it's quite phenomenal, the level of growth and the, the level of access that they've been able to develop in a very short period of time. Now, they jumped back onto my radar this week because I came across a post on LinkedIn from this gentleman here, Hugh Van Steenis. Um, And he is vice chair of Oliver Wyman, one of the big consulting firms. He's also linked into the English National Opera and a bunch of other organizations, a very establishment figure. Um, And he's talking here in this post about uh, the Responsible Investment Forum uh, and uh, a fabulous group of investors, financiers, business and policymakers convened by James Harding, who's the editor and co-founder of Tortoise Media, and Lord Rothschild. Uh, Jacob Rothschild, that is. Now, the Responsible Investment Forum is focused on uh, 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 directing uh, institutional money into um, funds and investments focused specifically on climate change and a bunch of other things relating to the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, the event was held in October at Waddesdon, which is the uh, Rothschild house near to Aylesbury. There's a bunch of um, uh, very, very polished and um, um, uh, very well-heeled people who attended that event. Um, And uh, uh, Lord Rothschild is um, the the current scion of of the Rothschild banking dynasty. And I won't go into too much detail about him. I mean, we could be here all day talking about the Rothschild family. But the thing I thought was most interesting, beyond his, his direct link to Tortoise Media, right, is that he's also on the board of something called Genie Energy. And this is a listed corporation, uh, which also has on its board Rupert Murdoch, uh, the the media magnate, and also the former U.S. vice president and CEO of Halliburton, Dick Cheney. And Genie, the energy company, was the first energy company given rights to drill for oil in Israel's Golan Heights. And that could potentially be one of the reasons, if we look on the next slide, that uh, it's been announced that Palestine has actually found a significant amount of natural gas. And actually, this has been reported for quite some time a significant amount of natural gas off the coast of, 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 of Gaza, in particular. In fact, it's estimated there are $500 billion worth of national, natural gas reserves uh, off the coast of Gaza. And I'm wondering if Genie Energy have got anything to do with what's going on in Israel at the moment and could be one of the main reasons why uh, Zelensky is not able to garner the interest of the international community in the way that he was up until uh, a month or so ago.
0: That it is now elected governments that are controlling Uh, global policy and the rules-based international order, there's something far more powerful operating through them and above them. Um, But let's just uh, finish by having a look at our own parliament again. And a couple of days ago, there was a vote as to whether to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, The no's carried the day that there should not be an immediate ceasefire in Gaza And of course, no ceasefire meant that they were voting to keep the killing of the children and the bloodshed right the way across uh, Gaza and Israel going. Uh, But I was interested in how the vote went and who voted. Uh, This is um, Sir Gary Streeter, who happens to be my local MP. And I was very interested to see that he voted um, not, he voted that he didn't want a ceasefire. Uh, this surprised me because, of course, he's involved with this organisation, Christians in Parliament. In fact, it's a little bit deeper than involved. He is the chair of Christians in Parliament. And I found it very difficult to understand how a Christian could possibly uh, not want to vote for a ceasefire to save lives, particularly of many civilians and children I haven't got an answer to what I'm reporting at the moment, but I want to show that, as far as um, this uh, parliamentary group for Christianity is concerned, they're very dedicated. This is some of the um, agendas that they cover meals with Jesus. Um, But when we get into the meat of things, sorry, no pun intended. Uh, on the Twitter page, Um, I had a look to see if there was anything about Gaza. There wasn't, but we had this, um, which I decided I'd bring up on screen. Um, We have a very popular and important morning at annual parliamentary prayer breakfast in stunning Westminster Hall, lovely to be joined by some of our church leaders from across mid-Sussex, a magnificent address on the power and challenge of reaching forgiveness. Well, I don't see a lot of forgiveness in the UK's government in 2023, particularly as David Cameron pumps the weapons into Ukraine to keep the killing going. Uh, But my key point is that I am very saddened to see that when I look into Christians in parliament, I cannot find any value being placed on the lives of the children uh, who are in Gaza and those children dying in Gaza. I think this is incredibly sad and a very bad reflection on people who claim to be Christians in Westminster.
1: Um, we're just going to end with, on a slightly uh, more humorous note, uh, because uh, Donald Tusk, uh, of course, has won enough of the votes in Poland that he is likely to become the next Polish Prime Minister, goodness help us all, because this is uh, not a great uh, development. Uh, But he doesn't apparently appreciate uh, anything about uh, personal security and so on. So he was uh, caught on camera and broadcast on Polish television. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he decided that uh, everybody needed to know his unlock code for his mobile phone. Uh, So anybody that can actually grab that off him, uh, at least you you don't have any problems about uh, getting access to it, so there we go.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there with a wry smile on our faces. Uh, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. A huge thank you to our audience. Uh, If you're watching from wherever you are in the world and you're not yet a subscriber of UK Column, please consider doing that because we would very much like to expand further. And, of course, many hands make light work if you can make that subscription. Uh, We need to end there. We'll be back at the same time on Monday, but we'll be back also for our subscribers for extra time in a few moments. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.